All right, let's, uh, let's start off with our review of the Old Testament that we've been working on. And if you don't know what we're doing, you know, you can just uh, sit there and make fun of us if you want to. Um, you'll catch on soon enough. Um, so you're going to try to try to fill in the blanks verbally with me. Uh, you can do the signs if you're really good, um, but the signs are there to kind of help you also to think of the word that you're trying to say as you fill in those blanks. And so we've got to go fast today. I've got a lot to say. So what else is new, right? But um, yeah. So uh, here we go. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us about creation. Chapter 3, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Chapter 5, genealogies, a little bit boring sometimes. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the flood. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood, rainbow. Chapter 10 again, genealogies. Chapter 11, the tower of you guys are getting good. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and he spoke to him. God said, go into the land that I will show you. I will make you a great and mighty nation. I will make your name great and I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. So Abraham packed his bags and he and his family went up around the fertile crescent and they came to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? Good. But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they were getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was named, renamed Israel. So Jacob, aka Israel, had how many sons? Twelve sons, ten fingers, two earlobes. The second to youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Egypt, where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and Joseph's whole family moved down to Egypt for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died and then Joseph died. So there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family, which had become very large by this time. So he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive and the people began to cry out saying, God, get us out of this mess. Let's try that one again. Saying, God, get us out of this mess. That's right. So God called a man named Moses and told him to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power, and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? Ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. Next, Moses gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea, and on up to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve spies, who were also family leaders, into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. Ten leaders came back and said, no go, but two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten leaders, and as a group, they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount Nebo, where Moses died and a new leader was selected. We'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River, and they divided up the promised land between the 
12 tribes. Let's try that again. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economical, and spirit, social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges. God, give us a king. First king was Saul. The second king, actually, if you really want to know, there was actually another king before that. If you want to know some trivia, you can look that up later, smart people. He wasn't over the whole thing, though. He was just over kind of a little area. Anyway, first king was Saul. The second king was David. And the third king was Solomon. They all ruled a united kingdom. After uh, Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel. This is going to be important for today. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were how many tribes in the north? Ten. And how many tribes in the south? Two. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. Zero. And there were how many good kings in the south? Eight. Eight. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom, Israel. He took the 10 tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. What, about, what happened to Israel, the 10 tribes to the north? They took the 10 tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than 100 years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came down to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. 70 years later, Babylon uh, had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian kings sent three leaders back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple, reestablished, that was, uh, that was Zerubbabel. They reestablished corporate worship, Ezra, and they rebuilt the wall, and that was Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi, and he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst on the scene prophesying about Jesus Christ, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that is the Old Testament in a nutshell. Give yourselves a hand. You're getting better and better. We walk through this every once in a while as a church, especially when we're looking at Old Testament Scripture. Just to get that into our head. Right now, we're in the middle of a series that I've called The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful, in which we're learning from some lesser-known Old Testament leaders. Next week, we'll finally get to the bad guy. Some of you are like, all right. But this week, we're still learning from a good king named Hezekiah. For the last two weeks, we've looked at what made Hezekiah so good. And we learned from the prosperous process that he followed in his own life. Scripture says God was with Hezekiah so that he prospered in everything he did. Going so far as to say that there was never another king like him, either before or after his time. So, if Hezekiah was perhaps God's favorite king, nothing bad ever happened to him, right? Wrong. Hezekiah faced trouble like most of us only face in our worst nightmares. Let's read about it. Picking up where we left off, we're in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, starting with verse 7. I'm going to use the NLT this, verse, uh, this week. It just reads really well. It's, a very, it's really good for stories like this. So here we go in verse 7 of chapter 18. So the Lord was with him. And Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. He revolted against the king of Assyria and refused to pay him tribute. He also conquered the Philistines as far as a distant, as distant as Gaza and its territory from their smallest outpost to their largest walled city. During the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign, which was the seventh year of King Hoshea's reign in Israel, King Shalmaneser of Assyria attacked Israel and began a siege on the city of Samaria. Okay, does that sound familiar. I hope so. Remember from the review we've been doing in 722 BC, King Shalmaneser of Assyria came down and took the 10 tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. That's what's going on right here in our story. That happened in the northern kingdom of Israel. 
while Hezekiah reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah. Going on, verse 10. Three years later, during the sixth year of King Hezekiah's reign and the ninth year of King Hosea's reign in Israel, Samaria, Samaria fell. At that time, the king of Assyria deported the Israelites to Assyria and put them in colonies in Hala along the banks of the Habor River in Gozan and among the cities of the Medes, for they had refused to listen to the Lord their God. Instead, they had violated his covenant, all the laws the Lord had given through his servant Moses. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, okay, so just eight years after Samaria, uh, the capital of Israel had fallen, King Sennacherib of Assyria, a new Assyrian king, came to attack the fortified cities of Judah and conquered them. These would have been some of the other major cities of Judah, but not the capital, which was Jerusalem. Now, we need to pause and understand at this point that when the Assyrian war machine came to town, they brought nightmarish violence with them. They were, the, they, <laughs> they were like orcs, goblins, and trolls. Oh, my okay? Uh, They were barbaric. The Assyrian army uh, made Hitler's Gestapo seem tame. Historical accounts of what Assyrians did to their enemies are too gruesome to mention in this setting. I can still remember listening about this and learning about this in a seminary class and being emotionally shaken by the truth of what they did to people. Assyria was the worst. They were worse than any movie you probably never should have seen, okay? Um, fear was their tactic. They intentionally made themselves the most feared thing on earth at the time. The Assyrians made their enemies prefer surrender and quick death over what they did to the people if they didn't surrender. I'm going to only be specific enough to say that they did their worst to women and children. They broke all the unwritten rules of warfare, ruthless. They stopped at nothing. They were truly brutal. Sometimes Assyrians wiped out entire people groups, committing mass genocide preceded by torture. They did this to instill fear in their future enemies, and generally it worked. Other times, they only killed the soldiers and deported the rest, but you didn't know what they were going to do when they showed up at your walls, only that it would be worse if you failed to surrender. They were truly evil, and eventually God put an end to them, wiping them from the face of the earth. But at this point in history, the Assyrians were at the peak of their relatively short-lived season of power. Just eight years before their army showed up on Hezekiah's doorsteps, the same Assyrians had completely annihilated the northern kingdom of Israel. They killed many and dispersed others until the tribes of Israel, the brothers of Judah, basically no longer existed as a people. Israel to the north had consisted of ten tribes, if you remember, including such powerful, such a powerful tribe as Ephraim, probably the largest tribe. So how do you think the two little tribes remaining down in Judah were feeling when Assyria came down to attack them? Next in the story, Hezekiah tries to buy the Assyrians off, but that doesn't work. So skipping ahead, we're going to read that part. Skipping ahead to verse 17, let's read on. Nevertheless, the king of Assyria sent his commander-in-chief, his field commander, and his personal representative from Lachish with a huge army to confront King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. The Assyrians stopped beside the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near the road leading to the field where cloth is bleached. They summoned King Hezekiah, but the king sent these officials to meet with him, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the royal historian. Then the Assyrian king's personal representative sent this message to King Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Which of your allies will give you any military backing against Assyria? Will Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, you will find it to be a stick that breaks beneath your weight and pierces your hand. The Pharaoh of Egypt is completely unreliable. See, they were just trying to figure out what in the world could be keeping Hezekiah from surrendering. He was like a little league team facing the New York Yankees on a good year. So then this representative for Assyria goes on wondering what Hezekiah is putting his faith in, saying, verse 22, but perhaps you will say we're trusting in the Lord our God. But isn't he the one who was insulted by King Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? All right, so this guy's totally in the dark. If you remember the story from the last two weeks, this guy thinks that back when Hezekiah had destroyed all the idolatrous places of worship, he had canceled the religion of his own people. What he doesn't get is 
that actually by doing this, Hezekiah had honored and obeyed the one true God and therefore was going to get a different result than what the northern kingdom of Israel had gotten since they had chosen to continue in their idolatry and rebellion against him. But this guy, ignorant of the one true religion, goes on with his taunt. Verse 23, I'll tell you what, my master, the king of Assyria, will strike a bargain with you. If you can find 2,000 horsemen in your entire army, he will give you 2,000 horses for them to ride on. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of uh, my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and horsemen? What's more, do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? The Lord Himself told us, go and destroy it. Now, this is my favorite part, because this reminds me of opposition I have faced as a spiritual leader. When all else fails, this guy who doesn't really know God is arrogant enough to say, hey, God told me different than He told you. So the gauntlet is down. They're going to find out. They're going to find out whose side God is on. And by the way, God does take sides. God is sovereign and God chooses. His love is offered to all and Jesus died for all those who will receive Him, but God does take sides. He takes the side of the righteous. And righteousness in the Bible is received only by grace and only through faith. Regardless, God chooses. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. Sometimes we don't like to think about that, but this is a thing that runs the entire length of Scripture. Where I might differ from the theological position of some is that I believe God chooses not arbitrarily, but rather for a very particular reason. I believe He chooses because of faith. But right now, the point is that we are coming upon a moment when God is going to choose. So would God choose the Assyrians here or the nation of Judah under Hezekiah's leadership? Just recently, he had actually chosen to allow the Assyrians to wipe out Israel, the ten tribes, to the north. Why? We read it earlier, and again, that's kind of another sermon, but it had to do with their lack of faith and resultant unrighteousness. But who is God going to choose this time? We'll see. Verse 26, then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joas said to the king's representative, please speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand it well. Don't speak in Hebrew, for the people on the wall will hear but, but Sennacherib's representative replied, my master wants everyone in Jerusalem to hear this, not just you. He wants them to know that if you do not surrender, this city will be put under siege. The people will become so hungry and thirsty that they will eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Did you know you can actually drink your own urine? It's a myth that uh, it's poisonous and that you can't. I know it's disgusting, incredibly disgusting, but to survive when you have no water, you actually can reclaim a small amount of hydration by doing so. Personally, I'm honestly not sure my will to live is that strong. As Paul said, better to die and go home to be with the Lord than to drink your own. Well, that's not exactly what he said. <laughs> but this is a survival skill, believe it or not, and that's just a bonus piece of information for you today that just might save your life someday if you want to live that bad. Verse 28. Then he stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let King Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue from my power. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying the Lord will rescue us. This city will never be handed over to the Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me, open the gates and come out. Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevine and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land of grain and new wine, bread and vineyards, olive groves and honey. Choose life instead of death. Now, what would have been wrong with it if the people had accepted these terms? I mean, assuming it was all true and deportation was in fact used by the Assyrians, what would have been wrong with accepting these terms? Well, besides this being the path of fear rather than faith, it would also have meant abandoning the promised land in disobedience to the previous command of God to subdue it and continue to live there. In fact, they would have been choosing to return likely to the general area from whence Abraham had first come, very possibly near Terran, which was barren, thereby undoing all that God had done and rejecting His plan for their lives out of faithless fear. 
I wonder how many times that happens in our lives. The antagonist continues, don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And what happened, uh, what about the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena and Eva? Did they rescue Samaria from my power? Okay, so wow. Did you catch that? Remember, Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom the center of power for the ten tribes that had belonged to Yahweh, God of Israel. And this guy likens their gods to the nations of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Avah. That's just how far Israel had strayed from the one true God. Assyria had not even realized who Israel's God had been. In fact, if God had saved Israel to the north, He wouldn't have received the glory because nobody knew He was their God. And in fact, at this point, he was not. As a side note, how close are we to that kind of situation in our own country? I'm not saying the United States was ever God's holy nation, like ancient Israel and Judah, but there is the God by whom we had been known, is there not? Have we not called on the same God to protect us from the Revolutionary War up to now? Have not most or all of our presidents claimed to be Christian? And yet, if we were rescued from our enemies today, would the glory go to the one true God as it did at least to some degree in the past? I'm not so sure. Verse 35, what God of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? Name just one. So what makes you think that the Lord, he uses Yahweh here, can rescue Jerusalem? Interesting, he actually at least knew who their God was. But the people were silent and did not answer because Hezekiah had told them not to speak. What a testimony to Hezekiah's leadership, by the way. 37, then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the royal historian, went back to Hezekiah. They tore their clothes in despair, and they went in to see the king and told him what the Assyrian representatives had said. So, my friend, you think you've got trouble. But Hezekiah had real trouble. They were facing genocide. Men, women, and children. Theirs was just one more insignificant little nation that Assyria was going to conquer and demolish. Picture it like this. There's a group of 100 terrorists outside your home. You're hunkered down inside with your family, your precious little family. Yours is the last home standing in your subdivision because they've wiped out all the rest. Some of the time you would notice that a few survivors were taken away, but most of the time everyone was brutally tortured and killed. And now the same group is outside your house. One of their leaders is shouting about just how helpless you really are. And you thought a bad haircut or spotty Wi-Fi was a problem. Right? Our, our uh, first world problems don't quite uh, stack up. So what did this good godly king named Hezekiah do when facing trouble of the worst kind? What was his response to this trouble which came to him in spite of his goodness? And in spite of all the godly things he had done, what can we learn from his response? That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time, because you see, this has been preserved in the Bible for millennia for a reason. This is in there because God wants us to learn from those who have gone before us. Let's make some observations about Hezekiah's response that we can apply to our own life. First of all, like Hezekiah, you and I need to recognize trouble as trouble. That's number one. You need to recognize trouble as trouble. This is true in two ways. First, we need to not overreact or call it trouble when in fact what we are facing is simply the challenge of doing the right thing. We've been learning about all the right things that Hezekiah did. Doing those things was difficult, but he never called those things trouble. There are challenges and then there is trouble. Hezekiah recognized the trouble he was in here at a whole other level. He could do that because he had not been crying wolf about every little difficulty before that. You know, some people live crisis to crisis. And if they don't have one, they make one. Watch out for that. Take note that today we're talking about trouble of the worst kind. I mean, real trouble. More importantly, I want you to notice that when serious trouble came to Hezekiah, he was not flippant about it. And he did not deny it, even though he was a man of great faith. He did not just say something like, oh, well, God is bigger. 
No, look at chapter 19, verse 3. Hezekiah responds to all of this first with these words. Today is a day of trouble, insults, and disgrace. It is like when a child is ready to be born, but the mother has no strength to deliver the baby. That's some tough imagery. Hezekiah recognizes that he's in real trouble. The very sad, despairing, hopeless kind of trouble. It's people are in trouble, even the children, even the mothers who are yet to give birth. I hate to say it, but his use of this metaphor points to some things, the nightmarish things the Assyrians were known to do that I said I wouldn't mention. Things Hezekiah knows about, and so he is deeply concerned. Friends, there is a time for concern among the faithful, and even for fear if it leads you to God for help. When serious trouble comes, it is not the path of faith to deny that the trouble exists. God does not expect a Pollyanna attitude even when the sky really is falling. Like Hezekiah, sometimes in our lives, whether we're talking about our marriages, our own private struggles, or even in our churches or our nation, there is a time to recognize serious trouble for what it is. One cannot follow the rest of Hezekiah's example, which led to triumph, unless one first recognizes trouble as trouble. Our world is a troubled place. It is a world that has been cursed because of sin. What was once a paradise is now the devil's playground. What was once perfect is now decaying. What was once designed to be eternal is crumbling. One day all things will be made new. That's the redemptive promise of our Savior Jesus Christ. But until then, we will experience trouble. We ought to remember that Jesus told us in advance, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That last line leads right into the next thing Hezekiah did and the next thing we should do when we face trouble. After recognizing trouble as trouble, we should run straight to God. Run straight to God. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. The Bible records, when King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord to pray. Notice this is the first thing Hezekiah did, not the last thing. As soon as he heard the report, and because he recognized the serious trouble they were in, he ran straight to God. And how did he run to God? In desperation and humility. Hezekiah tore his clothes, which would have been very expensive, by the way. He didn't just run down to Coles to get a new outfit in those days. Hezekiah's royal regalia would have been worth a fortune, but he shredded it and put on scratchy old sackcloth. This was a sign of deep mourning and contrition in that culture. After clothing himself with humility... Hezekiah went straight to the temple. I picture him running there. And he went there to meet with God. Our text says he went there to pray, which is really the point here. Our very first response to recognizable trouble, recognized trouble, ought to be personal, private prayer. And while we don't have to go to a temple, and even though shredding our clothes may not be the way we get serious with God today. The principle is that when real trouble comes, we need to crank it up several notches in terms of seeking the Lord. We need to get very, very active and intentional about prayer when there is real trouble. Remember, Hezekiah was already very close to God. The Bible says he was pleasing to God, that God was with him. He prospered him everywhere he went. Hezekiah clung to the Lord, his God. Remember all that? We're not talking about someone who was far from God and needed a good knock in the head to come back to God. We are talking about someone who was already walking with the Lord, and yet when serious trouble came, even this standout man of faith took his walk to a whole other level. He ran straight to God, and he prayed to the Lord in desperation and humility. Everything else was put aside. His busy schedule was scrapped. The birthday party that somebody was probably having at the time was not attended. His throne sat unoccupied. His texts were not answered. His other responsibilities were not met. In short, everything and everyone else was put aside for at least a time, and Hezekiah's life focused like a laser on one thing and one thing only, God. 
As we will see, this is part of how Hezekiah turned trouble into triumph. Has there ever been a time in your life when you ran straight to God? Have you ever been this serious with God? Chances are that if you have, it was because of major trouble. As I look back on my life, the times when I've really sought God with everything I had were the times of greatest trouble. I'd say there's something to that. The psalmist wrote, out of the depths, you could almost put, that's when I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive, attentive to my cry for mercy. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Out of the depths, the depths of what? The depths of trouble, of despair, of fear. You can't write a song like that unless you're in the depths. You can't experience this kind of longing for God unless you're at the bottom, hopeless without His response. I wonder if I would know God as I do if not for times of trouble. I think not. And see, when you learn this for real, you remember it the next time. When you have experienced a special level of closeness to God through a time of trouble, you know that He's worth the trouble. Yes, trouble-induced experiences with God can change your life like nothing else. This is part of how trouble can be turned to triumph, even if your trouble is not resolved as positively or completely as it was in the case of Hezekiah. But then none of this happens if you don't do what Hezekiah did. You won't wind up experience this kind of triumph if you don't respond to trouble by running straight to God, doing so in a similarly um, intense kind of way. Let me point out also that you can't run straight to God and run straight to retaliation at the same time. Uh-oh. I hope you heard that. Hezekiah did not react or retaliate to these insults, even though they were insults directed toward his people, his family, himself, and his God. Instead of reacting or retaliating, Hezekiah ran to God. That's huge. After all these threats, insulting him as king, insulting his army, insulting the people, even blaspheming his God, he never replied to the attackers themselves. Are you kidding me? As I've been saying, Hezekiah was special, and we can learn from him. We haven't even read the second passage of taunting threats from the Assyrians recorded in the next chapter, but in neither case did Hezekiah respond to the accusers. He did not retaliate with, retaliate with loaded words of his own. Instead, he ran straight to God. Maybe this is something we should try sometime. What do you do when you get that email that really ticks you off? What do you do when you're accused or verbally attacked? Do you quickly fire back? Do you hastily find a fault in the other person to be pointed out? Well, I may be arrogant, but you're fat. Hezekiah knew that responding in kind to these evil men would accomplish absolute nothing. Will your harsh response to someone else, their attack, accomplish anything? Someone might say, well, if it's nothing else, it makes me feel better. That's not true. Actually, it makes you feel worse. And what does it do for the situation? Probably just gives the other person more ammo against you, right? And worse, maybe you become just as bad as they are now. Well, he started it. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I, I try. I really try at this kind of non-response methodology, but I usually get tripped up somewhere in the middle of it. Like if it was an email, I might respond with something like this. Well, God has shown me that I should not respond to this ridiculously stupid load of garbage that you just attacked <laughs> me with in your email. So I won't. Oops. But if we learn from the example of Hezekiah, instead of responding to trouble with such nonsense, we will run straight to God instead. And what did Hezekiah do when he went to God? We know that he got very serious and desperate before God, that he went to the temple alone to pray to God. What kind of things did he say to God while he was there? That's the next step we can learn from Hezekiah's example. When trouble comes, report the situation to God. 
report. This is a big part of how we start to turn trouble into triumph, and this is the heart of the matter. We report the situation to God in prayer, or as the old song says, we tell it to Jesus. That's actually a very biblical thing to do. Make the time. Get on your knees. Be alone with God. Talk out loud if it helps. Stay focused. Put aside other things. Report the entire situation, including details and all of your feelings. Read the Psalms. Yes, tell God all about it, and maybe more than once. Let me pause and tell you a little bit of where the story goes. After the initial threat and the initial season of prayer that we just read about, God answered Hezekiah's prayer by sending the Assyrians away to defend themselves from an attack by the Ethiopians. However, even as they were leaving, they sent a letter to Hezekiah, a parting shot, telling him they would be back. And in the letter, they made a bunch more threats about how Hezekiah and his people were all going to die, just like all the other nations, and on and on. Incidentally, the meanest letters and emails I've ever received were from people on their way out the door, right? Okay. Anyway, when it comes to Hezekiah's trouble and sometimes our own, have you ever noticed how God often works on our problems in phases? In phases. Why can't He just fix the whole thing all at once, right? Well, maybe it's because God's primary purpose is not to fix our problems, but rather to have a relationship with us. And it turns out that helping us in phases works better to that end. So Hezekiah gets this huge answer to prayer, but it seems kind of temporary after the Assyrians send him a parting letter that basically says, I'll be back. And in this letter, the threats are even worse than the verbal threats we read earlier. So now what? Well, once again, Hezekiah does not respond to the threats, but rather he repeats the right step. He runs straight to God in prayer. He reports the situation, and this time we find out more about the content of his praying from chapter 19, verse 14. After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. O Lord God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations, and they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. After opening with worship, an important point as well, Hezekiah simply reports the trouble to God in detail. My favorite part is where Hezekiah takes the actual letter and literally spreads it out before the Lord. I love this. Hezekiah, it would have been a scroll. Hezekiah spreads out the letter and says, Lord, would you have a look at this? Can you believe this, God? What are we going to do about this, Lord? And see, God loves that. This speaks to the whole point of prayer. It's about a relationship. It's about communication. Sure, God already knows it. That's not the point. Listen, my wife is really great with relationships, okay? And I've noticed that she doesn't care if I already know about something. She's going to tell me anyway. Have you seen this particularly with your wives and mothers, guys? Yeah. She's going to tell me anyway. And that's good. That's a good thing. Ultimately, is what I'm saying. Similarly, God wants you to talk to him not as if he's a know-it-all, but as a friend like Adam and Eve did in the garden before sin wrecked everything. Talk to God to talk to God, even if he already knows. So next, Hezekiah prays this beautiful prayer, telling out the greatness of God to God, reminding him of the insults of the Assyrians, and basically reporting the situation as if God needed this information in order to see clearly what ought to be done. The point is that this kind of thing is not offensive to God, because God wants to hear us say it. And God wants us to hear ourselves saying it, so that when he responds, we're very clear on what just happened and why. Listen, prayer is always telling God what he already knows. Always. The next time you're confused about prayer and wondering what to say, just remember this. Prayer is telling God what he already knows. Now, that's straight out of FUD, which is Ford's unauthorized dictionary. But it's still true. 
This is what God wants you to do in prayer. The point is never really to inform God. The point is in the telling. Interestingly, this seems to be harder for most of us men. I think because our minds say, what in the world? You know, why in the world would I want to tell someone something they already know? Right, guys? I mean, the point of communication is to inform, right? I mean, it's about the facts, right? Ah, but some people, women usually, understand that's not really true. The point of communication is to relate. Right at this moment, my wife is sitting over there and thinking, wait, you mean you actually know that? (laughs) Yes, I know it because you've taught it to me. See, that's why God made men and women in His image. Because in this area, at least, I think God is actually more like most women. Yes, God already knows, but He still wants to hear our report. I don't know about all women, but that makes me feel like that's... In my life, it's a woman that's like that, okay? Maybe a couple of women. He wants to hear us say it. Prayer is telling God what He already knows. And the more you do this, the more meaningful your relationship with Him will become. And that in itself goes a long way toward finding triumph in trouble. Notice, though, that Hezekiah did not stop with his report, neither should we. The next thing he did, and the next thing we need to do is this, request rescue from God. That's number four, request rescue from God. Reading on from where we left off, verse 19, Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from His power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. There's really not a whole lot of explanation needed on this point, so I'll be super brief on it, but simply notice that Hezekiah does make a specific request. And he also reminds God of a really good reason to answer that request. That's another thing we see often in the prayers of the Bible. Tell God why he ought to answer your request. Again, maybe that just feels wrong, like he doesn't need to hear it. But that is because we forget that God wants a relationship with us through our prayers. He wants us to talk through things with him. Prayer is not just kind of pragmatic, utilitarian tool like entering information into a computer. No, prayer is talking with God. And like all of us, God wants to be asked. He doesn't want to be taken for granted. He doesn't want, um, he doesn't even mind if we make our plea along with some good old-fashioned reasoning because all of it, every little bit of what we wind up saying is part of the growing relationship which he died on a cross to make possible. So in order to triumph over trouble when it comes into your life, recognize it as trouble, run straight to God, report the situation to God, make sure you actually request rescue from God, and finally, receive and believe God's answer. In spite of the apparent hopelessness of the situation, Hezekiah believed God would deliver them. After he had informed the prophet Isaiah of the situation, this is what happened. Chapter 19, verse 5. After King Hezekiah's officials delivered the king's message to Isaiah, the prophet, he replied, say to your master, say to Hezekiah, This is what the Lord says. Do not be disturbed by this blasphemous speech against me from the Assyrian king's messengers. Listen, I myself will move against him and the king will receive a report from Assyria telling him that that he's needed at home. Then I will make him want to return to his land where I will have him killed with a sword. It seems apparent that Hezekiah believed this word from God through Isaiah because otherwise he would have likely surrendered. Those who surrendered received less brutality from the Assyrians than those who refused to surrender. The lives of Hezekiah's citizens were in the balance, and apart from supernatural invention, they certainly had no chance to survive. In spite of desperate odds and the serious consequences if he was wrong, Hezekiah checked in with Isaiah again to make sure Isaiah spoke again, and Hezekiah believed. Now, let's not think it would have been so easy to believe Isaiah. You know, what if he's wrong? Hezekiah did not get to hear an audible voice from the clouds any more than we do. He had to believe Isaiah spoke for God. He could have just as easily thought Isaiah was a crazy old fool making up stories. I mean, this was an insane thing to believe. But Hezekiah did believe. Remember the first few verses we studied about this good king told us that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. In that time of history, 
One of the primary ways that God spoke was through prophets. These prophets proved they spoke for God in various miraculous ways. If a prophet was ever wrong in any prediction, he was to be killed by stoning. Prophets got zero tolerance because they didn't claim to be guessing at God, what God might want. They claimed to receive words directly from God, and they relayed his message verbatim. Sometimes a prophet wouldn't say anything for years and years because God was silent. You don't make stuff up when if you're wrong, you're dead. Most of the Old Testament of the Bible was written by prophets, each of whom were established and proven to be authentic. Isaiah was one of the most prolific of the prophets. In fact, Isaiah has one of the longest books in the Bible named after him. Isaiah made astonishing prophecies about Jesus that came true hundreds of years later. This same Isaiah relayed God's answer regarding the Assyrians and Hezekiah believed him. How does this apply to us today? What or whom do we need to believe? Let me state plainly that I do not believe we have this type of prophet living today. There are no prophets like Isaiah living today. No, Jesus was the final word. And so God's revelation to humanity is complete until he returns. Paul said, even if an angel tells you something different than the gospel you've received, don't believe it. My point is that what we need to believe and receive today as being the word of the Lord, God's answer to our questions today is simply the Holy Bible. We must believe the promises of Scripture apply to our future. We must believe that the Word of God is true. And not just to hold a philosophical position that it's true, but to know what it says and to believe those specific things are true. When we do that, we find all kinds of help and hope in our toughest times of trouble. When you face trouble, you need to believe the Word of the Lord. Like Hezekiah did. You need to believe words from the Bible like these. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. I go to prepare a place for you where you will be with me forever. I will remember your sin no more. Or how about this one also from the prophet Isaiah? So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will strengthen you. I will help you. These are the kinds of promises we need to believe when we face trouble. We need to believe these promises are from God, and we need to believe they're intended for us. When we do, like Hezekiah, we will be able to turn trouble to triumph. So how about the end of the story? Guess what? Everything God said would happen, happened, plus a bonus. Let's read it. From chapter 19, verse 35, that night the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian troops. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp, returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there one day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch. His sons Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with their swords. 185,000 Assyrian troops killed in one night? That's more than the soldiers the United States lost in all of the world since wars since World War II. Our losses in the last four or five wars don't total out to anywhere near 185,000. And this was all in one night. And it happened by the power of one angel. Let me tell you something, friends. We serve a mighty God. He has the power to bring us triumph through our trouble. And even though he may not always end our troubles, immediately does have the power to do so. And he knows what he's doing even when we don't. In fact, for the believer... Triumph and trouble has little to do with the outcome. Ultimately, all of our troubles are already solved. Anyway, right? This world's troubles have already been overcome. By who? By Jesus Christ who is coming soon to rescue from trouble those who long for His appearing. What's the, who, who longs for His appearing more than those who are in trouble? Hopefully all of us, yes. What's the worst case scenario for the believer? Heaven. And what is heaven, really? It's the end of all trouble. That being the case, even if we don't always get the miracle here and now, in faith and as we seek the Lord, the only outcome our trouble can actually bring us is triumph. What's your trouble? 
Would you consider taking your notes home and studying the scriptures we've shared? Would you consider applying these principles to your real life situation? Would you spread it out before the Lord? And all of the other things. I hope so because God's word is powerful, not just in hearing, but when it's applied. Pray with me. Lord, I don't know what folks in this room are facing or those who are listening online. But I pray that there would be hope today that would arise in some hearts. There's, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's a better path to victory here than maybe we could find anywhere in the world. Not to belittle good biblical counseling at all, and that can be wonderful, but it doesn't get any better than this. This is your word. This is a path towards victory for somebody today. I believe it. So I pray that some of us, especially those who are in trouble, will, will apply it now, but others of us can remember your word. Maybe if it's a year from now, we could go, do you remember there was a sermon? It was in Hez- I think it was on Hezekiah. Look it up and that we can apply it. I pray for today. I pray for the future. I pray that we would apply your word as people of God and see our lives change and see our perspectives change and see our world change. If we could learn to face trouble like this, it would be a precursor to revival, I believe. It's not the kind of way that I see most of us face trouble, myself included. Lord, thank you for your word today. Just help us to apply it. And Lord, this has been a message for believers for sure, um, teaching the Bible to people who are trying to live according to the Bible. But there may be someone here, Lord, today who's not really taken that step. And um, thank you, God, that those folks are here. And um, we just don't want to sort of assume and act like we think here that everybody's wanting to live by the Bible or that everybody knows you when we know that that's not the truth. And in fact, we are a remnant in our world today. So whoever's here or whoever may be listening that has never really committed their lives to, to you, Lord, to Christ, have never really come to the foot of the cross and laid it all down, I pray someone would maybe do that today. It's not complicated. You did the hard part. So I just pray for a response today for somebody inside their heart to say yes to Jesus. I need to, I need to turn from my own ways. I need to turn to your ways, Lord. I don't know what it all means. I don't know how I might have to change. But today, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I want Jesus to be my Lord. Help me learn to be the person God wants that you want me to be, Lord. Thank you for saving um, so many of us in this room. At some point, we've had a moment like that with you. Help us to live it out and help us to share it with others. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.